This episode is brought to you by Greg Morris Cards, one of the largest sports card sellers on the planet. Greg sells over 80,000 vintage and modern cards every month, including basketball, football, baseball, hockey, all sports really, and even some non-sports cards too. On top of that, every raw card receives the same hand grading that collectors have put their trust in for over 15 years. What are you waiting for? Head on over to gregmorriscards.com auctions and check it out for yourself. What's up, everyone? This is episode 174 of the Wax Museum podcast, where I talk about all things basketball cards from past to present to future. This is your host, Kyle, and as always, you guys can find me throughout the week on social media. My Instagram is at Wax Museum Podcast, and my Twitter is at Wax Museum PC. Okay, well, I've got a lot to pack into today's episode. As you can see from the title, I've got a fun conversation for you with a former industry executive. I've got a few hobby happenings I want to touch on before that, and also a couple pieces of mail. So let's just go ahead and jump right in. Uh, The NBA draft was last week, and I've had a lot of people reach out to me and message me asking what I thought about the Pacers drafting Benedict Matherin, which first off, thank you. I appreciate that. I appreciate that you are thinking of me when you see something related to my team. Um, I will say I like the pick. I think it's a good safe pick. And I probably mentioned it on here at some point, but for a while I kind of wanted Shade and Sharp as time went along though and, and different videos came out. It seems like there were a lot of red flags associated with him. So I think the Matherin pick is good. Now, as far as draft analysis in general, I'm going to leave that to the experts, but I do want to tackle the hobby side of things real quick. Judging by Panini's social media, it seems like they at least had some sort of a presence there. We didn't really get any behind-the-scenes stuff, though. In fact, the only video I saw of a draft pick signing the usual draft night stickers was posted on the Nuggets account and not Panini's. And I don't know, to me, that's kind of crazy. Seems like a very low effort thing. You got a guy standing in front of you, signing some stickers, take out your phone, take some pictures. But anyway, at least they were there for the draft or they had a photographer there, which was nice to see. And speaking of Panini and Panini cards, if you haven't heard, the LeBron Triple Logo Man sold this week. And yes, I know, I'm You've heard it, right? I'm kidding. Um, You're tired of it. So I'm going to move on to the next topic of discussion, which is the release of a product called Panini Photogenic. And I previewed this one on the show a few weeks ago. Chances are, if you got in at the $150 price point, you probably did pretty well. And I know I ragged on this set in the past because, you know, I think good photography should be a foundational element of every set. And I stand by that claim. That's not changing. Regardless, though, I'm impressed with what I've seen so far. The base cards have a little thicker stock. The photos look great. The 75th anniversary parallels have like a um, cracked ice look to them. They look great. I haven't opened any myself, but I've definitely enjoyed watching other people rip through their boxes, and I'll likely pick up some stuff on the secondary market. Now, my only complaint is that all the autos are stickers, but otherwise, seems like a pretty nice product. Okay, On to the mail, 
And this week's mail segment is going to be an abbreviated version. I've shown one of the cards on my YouTube channel already, and the other one you'll see there soon enough. But the first card I got in this week was a 1998-99 Topps Chrome Refractor of Al Harrington, which was his rookie year. And it's graded a BGS 8.5. Now, I got this thing for like $12. So my original plan was to crack this out of the slab and put it in my refractor binder. But then I got looking at the slab again and I noticed that the centering grade was a 10. And for those of you that know 98 Chrome, you know the centering is brutal on that set. So I have to admit, I got a bit mesmerized by the number on the label. And I kind of had a moment of weakness here. I kind of had second thoughts you know, which usually isn't my style. I'm not into buying numbers, but, um, you know, I, it forced me to think about it a little bit because I really haven't seen a lot of chrome refractors that have that tin grade. So I sent out a bit of an SOS to friend of the show, Sholey, and he astutely pointed out to me the centering of the card is a tin regardless if it's in the slab or not. So I will probably be cracking that out of the slab. It just hasn't happened yet. If I do, I'll make sure and throw that video on my YouTube channel. Hopefully it's a little smoother than my last attempt. Um, the second card I picked up this week then is a nice patch uh, or a nice patch auto, I should say, of Globetrotters legend Curly Neal from one of the older Sport Kings products. And you guys know I've talked about it. I love reading about the Globetrotters, but they just don't have a lot of stuff out there. So when I saw this card with a nice on-card auto and a multicolor patch, even though it was just kind of a basic multicolor one, I decided to grab it and I'm glad that I did. So if you're listening to this and I still haven't posted a picture of it on social media, which there's a good chance I haven't, shoot me a message because I want to make sure you guys get a chance to check this thing out. Hey Kyle, this is David at Mostly 90s Basketball Cards on Instagram. I am a Devin Harris collector, Go Badgers, and I am looking for two rare cards from 2008. A uh, 2008 Red Refractor Tops Chrome, number to five, and a 2008 Red Refractor Bowman Chrome, also number to five. Please help. So David mentioned there that his handle was mostly 90s basketball cards, and the portion not covered under that mostly title, I'm guessing then, is his Devin Harris PC. And he mentioned that he's looking for both Red Refractors from 2008, and those are both number to five. This whole conversation only came up this week because of one of those Instagram story trends that, um, you know, I haven't really got in on those much yet, but I got in on this one. It said, post something from your camera roll that's red. So I posted my Danny Granger Bowman red refractor number to five. He saw that and we got to talking. Um, so now, you know, between this week and last week, the last two collector classifieds have been pretty rare hunts. Remember, we had Ricky's Jeff Malone 101 auto. He's still looking for that. And then now we have these refractors number to five. So they're going to be tough hunts. But regardless, I want to put the word out there. And I hope you guys are watching out now as well. Let's see if we can find these cards. All right. Before I move into today's main segment, I want to take a moment to remind you how you can support this show. As you guys know, there are costs that go into producing a podcast. One of my goals is to always keep the show itself free. As a result, I've signed up for affiliate programs with eBay and Fanatics. If you'd like to help support the show in this way, go to www.waxmuseumpodcast.com. Click whatever store you need to go to, shop as planned, and the show gets a small commission in the process. Once again, that's www.waxmuseumpodcast.com. Hi, this is Alan Siegel, the designer of the NBA logo. And now you're listening to the Wax Museum 
podcast. Okay, so joining me today as a guest, I'm really excited to talk to, and that's Tony Leocono. And if you don't recognize that name right off the bat, you're probably still very familiar with his work. He's worked in television. He's worked in marketing. He's worked with digital currencies. He was the vice president of marketing and sales at Upper Deck in the early 90s. It's a company that many of you know very well. And then he went on to become the founder and CEO of the Ted Williams Card Company, uh, among many other things. I can't get to all of them in the intro here, but Tony, thank you so much for coming on today. How are you doing? I'm sitting on uh, ocean <laughs> water and enjoying a beautiful day from the back of my boat. I don't think I could probably be much better. Yeah, for those of you that are listening to the audio version of this, uh, the scene that he's got, I'll, I'll have to even just throw up a screenshot on my Instagram or something of the scene of where he's at right now, because I, I have to admit, I'm very jealous. Well, you know, intros are always tough because I feel like I'm reducing a lifetime of work to, you know, 30 seconds or so. Uh, but we're definitely going to expand on the collectible related portion uh, as we go throughout the conversation. So before we get too far in, though, I want to ask a pair of questions that I ask, you know, practically every other guest that comes on the show. Uh, number one, were you much of a collector growing up? And then number two, uh, if so, what does your collecting history look like? I really wasn't a card collector growing up. Uh, in the age when I was growing up in the 60s and 70s, you know, cards were, uh, candidly, they were put in bicycle wheels with a with a clothesline clip and you would have, run them through uh but i did collect elvis presley so okay that was my collect that was my collection okay well that's you know it, there's no matter what you collect whether it's cards or, or vinyls or whatever uh we all have this collecting gene so we all kind of uh hopefully connect through that well um as i alluded to we're going to focus more on the card related stuff today and um, like I said, you've done a lot of other things, but I am curious to know um, what exactly your path to Upper Deck looked like, because I know you went to college at Central Michigan, and it looks like you stayed some in the Detroit area maybe to work uh, for the Ford Motor Company. So if you don't mind, can you give us a brief summary of your time between college and Upper Deck? Sure. I, uh, my first job uh, out of college was working for Robert Landau Associates and division of uh, Kenyon and Neckhart, a major advertising agency. And my first job was taking Bowie Kuhn's son's job. Bowie was the commissioner of baseball at that time. And his son, it was his adopted son by the name of Paul Degner, uh, didn't want to live in Detroit anymore. And so I had the opportunity to get that job. I played a uh, mean game of tennis, uh, collegiate tennis. And the guy I uh, got to know loved playing the tennis against me, and I beat him all the time. He said, anybody who's going to beat me that bad, I'm going to hire. So I started working on Ford Motor Company. The first project I ever worked on was Motocraft Oil. It was Ford Rotunda Oil, only sold in dealerships. And they were uh, desiring to rebrand it. And Robert Landau Associates uh, came in and was their agency. And I was the account guy on that. For the next few years, I worked on Ford Motor Company. And then I got a huge break in 1983. I launched the Eddie Bauer line for Ford Motor Company out of the vehicle sales division. And that propelled my career. 
and Robert Landau Associates was in charge of the Olympics in 1984 for ABC, John Lazarus, whose son now is uh, a major executive in television. And uh, they sent me out to LA to run all the entertainment, uh, really servicing all the celebrities in uh, LA for the Olympics and doing all the parties. And I had stacks and stacks of tickets. Then in, if you want to ask a question in between there, but then I uh, happened to stumble upon uh, Richard Dean Anderson, who was MacGyver, and Matt Perry from Friends Dad, John Bennett Perry, who was the old Spice Man back then. And they came to me while I was working on several different movies uh, for Universal Pictures and Orion Pictures and asked if I would put together the NHL celebrity hockey team. And so I became the executive director. I put the deal together with John Ziegler, uh, who was then the commissioner of hockey and started working, excelling my work in the sports arena. Um, worked throughout my career, stayed in sports and entertainment, working for the biggest agency in LA. I took a the business, it was called FCB, Footcomb Building Impact, and grew it to a little over $11 million in sales. My clients were Sunkist, Mattel, Universal Studios, Universal Studios Florida. I opened up that with David Weitzner, who was then the president. And then uh, in 1989, I got a call at the very end of 1989 by a gentleman by the name of Richard McWilliam. He calls and says, Tony, he said, uh, you don't know me, but you might know my company. And he said, Upper Deck. I said, I don't know who Upper Deck was. And he says, I'd like to meet with you. I'd like to sponsor your celebrity hockey team. And I said, okay, I'll come out and sit down and you know tell you a little bit about the team. We raised over $6 million for charities going all around the world. I, I told guys like Gordie Howe and uh, Bobby Hall and, uh, Wayne Gretzky and uh, Yager and Mario Lemieux to get on the ice and they listened to me. And so I, we raised a lot of money for charity and I went into this little small building in Yorba Linda, California called Upper Deck. I walk upstairs and there's a standee of Reggie Jackson and I was a New York Yankees fan, a Boston fan mainly, but being a Boston fan, you always have a nemesis in the Yankees and walk upstairs to Richard's office and I go in there and the first five minutes he looks at me and he says you know you're the kind of guy I'd like to run my marketing for it for this company I looked at him really fast back I said you couldn't afford me <laughs> and uh within two weeks he made me an offer I couldn't refuse I still live in the house uh gorgeous home in Bonzo California that he gave me a huge down payment to to, to start that home and own that home that I've lived in now for 31 years. And that's how I came to work with Upper Deck. So you had a, a pretty natural transition then working with athletes. And then eventually you would obviously end up, you would keep working with athletes with Upper Deck. Uh, Mr. McWilliam, did he outline your exact responsibilities or um, how was your role explained to you? It was basically come in and be my sidekick, you know, anything he needed done. I was heavily involved with the NFL, the NBA, and the NHL, 
um, in a lot of different things um, by that time and they uh, early beginning of 90 and they they did not have any licenses so my main responsibility was to go to the NBA um, the NHL and uh, the NFL to secure licenses so that was my main responsibility in then developing we had a 36 million dollar advertising budget by the end of 1990 going into 91 so then i was responsible for taking and building that brand and had the opportunity to build some great campaigns and work with the best of the best and signed you know i knew wayne before i hadn't met michael i signed michael i signed Shaq out of lsu I signed Yager, I signed Mario, I, I signed a whole bunch of guys. Just, but I had a long time relationship with a lot of athletes before I got to Upper Deck. And he said, let's build this company. And I came in, it was 14 million. When I left, it was 302, two years later. So you mentioned in there that um, you did sign Michael Jordan, which obviously uh, was a big deal because he's been an exclusive spokesperson uh, for what 30 years now. Um, 31. 31. Okay. So what do you remember about the negotiations with Michael and, and what all that entailed? Was it a tough sell? No, it was actually David Falk. And um, I became good friends with David over the years. Still, uh, I call him associate, not a close friend, but I mean, he takes my calls. And uh, David was Michael's agent. And David flew out to uh Palomar Airport. He flew into Palomar Airport. And we sat down at a breakfast place. Um, and he said, Okay, what are you going to do? And how much are you going to we're going to spend? And automatically, we started to talk about marketing. And Michael was in the last year of his contract with the Bulls. And so he saw it as an opportunity to, you know, generate some revenue, be in a different avenue with sports and sports memorabilia and set a new plumb line in the sports entertainment industry and entertainment industry with Upper Deck. We didn't really negotiate he, too much. He gave me a number and I agreed to the number. And then we started and got down to what we're going to do to make a difference with Michael and create a great ad campaign. And we did. Now, uh, one of those then, I, I believe it was in 1992, you were a pretty big part of, of the uh, Trade Jordan campaign. Is that correct? Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, that actually sprung from Mike, from uh, David also. David and I noodled that campaign on the back of a napkin. And then I brought in Shia Day as the advertising agency, and they built the uh, uh, billboard campaign. It was a simple campaign, centrally focused at media, you know, the, the typical PR strategy that Michael could boost. But we just went into... Chicago, and we bought 10 of the best billboards in all of Chicago. And on that billboard, uh, David and I worked it out. We called it Trade Jordan. Matter of fact, Michael still calls me the Trade Jordan guy. I was just down in Jupiter at the beginning of the year. And the uh, concept was that on Sunday night, um, we would go in and put Trade Jordan up uh, just on the billboards, nothing else, no other words, just trade Jordan. Saturday, I mean, Monday morning, the radio stations, talk radio, anything, just went nuts. And the PR went nuts. And, you know, Bill Lambeer got uh, 
people were saying, well, Pierre Lampier did it. Or, you know, people were saying that other people came up with this trade Jordan because Michael was on the block. Well, the fact is, is that we had decided that we were going to let that run until Wednesday night. And then Wednesday night, we were going to put up the uh, billboard with the uh, upper deck number 44 card. It was against the Lakers. And we put it up on the billboard at the middle of the night. And in the morning, everybody knew it was trade Jordan only on upper deck. So it was a fun campaign. It made me top 100 marketing guys in the country by ad age. It, it, went as, it was a global uh, program with a regional initial push. Okay, so I'm going to ask you about some different stories I've read or, or different initiatives I've read about, and I want you to try and fill in some of the details for me or maybe explain things from your perspective. Um, I can't find any video of it, but I've read about something called an upper deck cam that was installed in Madison Square Garden, Chicago Stadium, and the Los Angeles Forum. Uh, what was that and what was the thinking behind that ad campaign? Well, what it was, it started in Chicago. And I can't remember the guy, but they were a Chicago company. And I had the idea that we could create a slam cam. And I went to Gary Bettman, who was the now the commissioner of the NHL, who I've known forever. And I wouldn't call him a friend, but I'd definitely call him an associate. And I went to Bettman and I said, Gary, I want to put in a slam cam. And he says, what's a slam cam? I said, I want to put a camera above the, the uh, boards at both ends of the court. And he said, can you make sure the technology works? And I said, I sure can. So I ended up working with uh, professionals, uh, you know, before the internet really was going, but we wired it up for the networks and it became the first camera ever in the history of basketball with the NBA support. And it started in uh, uh, Chicago. So then Upper Deck kind of used that to get as another opportunity to get their name out there, right? We're going to watch this replay from the Upper Deck Slam Cam. That was the idea? Yes, sir, that was. And it, and obviously when you're doing those kinds of things, I was in television since, you know, I got in television and marketing very, very early. And, you know, you, you had to have the relationships at the networks to make things like that happen. But if the league gets behind it, Gary got behind it, then the, the networks could get behind it. And in Chicago, you know, you had uh, uh, real solid uh, Larry, uh, what, what, Larry Wirt, right? He was the king of all of the networks back then in the Chicago market. And, you know, we really worked aggressively with their team back then and made sure that we could get national television exposure from a regional buy. And then we uh, continued to take it to Madison Square Garden and do the same type of thing. And I know you've kind of continued that work with your company, Heads and Tails. Um, you did some, did you do like umpire cameras? I think I've read about that. Yeah, I, with Rick White, former president of baseball. Again, a good friend. He is a good friend of mine. He was a former president of Major League Baseball Properties. And he's over the Atlantic League. And we um, came into the Atlantic League and went to the New Britain Bees in uh, New Britain, Connecticut. And did 37 straight uh, games with technology. I used Verizon and 
used technology that ensured that we could take uh, cameras th that produced content and we edited it from California with uh, live feeds. We were the first company to ever do anything like that. We had nine different cameras and we're cutting it out of LA for the games and became very successful. And it was the first umpire cam and base cams ever in baseball. You know, about 10 years after you did the Upper Deck Slam Cam, uh, Upper Deck did a pin cam. Like they had Kobe Bryant signing stuff and they had a, a, a camera in, on the Sharpie. I, I can't help but think that you at least influenced that, even though you weren't there at that point. I don't know. There's, there was a lot of good guys that came after me, you know, Carvin and, you know, some of the card designs that came after us. Uh, I think they really pushed it to another limit. And, you know, I'm proud to say I, spent a lot of time with Richard all the way up to right before he died in 2013. He died on January 5th. I know that because my mom died on January 7th. And I spent a lot of time with Richard in his last part of his years. And he always, he was a tough guy. He would, a lot of people didn't like him, but he always pushed the limit and he always had people around him all the way up to that 2013 date that would push the limits on creativity. So I would credit Richard for finding people like me, like Carvin, like Brad Mayer, that uh, Michael Murhab, guys that would push the limit on creativity and weren't afraid to put our necks on the line. I think today we live in such a safe zone. People are afraid to take chances. I wasn't ever afraid to take chances because you, you got to take a chance if you want to change the, the, uh, the complexion of an industry. And that's what we were trying to do. And Richard, really came along at the right time in the tra trading card area to, to do that. So I credit Richard with his foresight to hire people like me. Well, another thing that Mr. McWilliam pushed for uh, was back in 1992. We're going to go back to Michael Jordan here, but um, his all-star jersey was up for auction. <laughs> and uh, I understand that you had a, a pretty major role in the acquisition of that jersey and, and even that you uh, had a little bit of a battle for it. Can you tell me that story? Yeah, that was probably most fun. Other thing with Jeff Hofstadter, I, I was always one to tell Richard, Richard, let's do something different. Let's make something different happen. And there was a guy by the name of Jeff Hamilton. Jeff is a wonderful artist. Uh, he made jackets for all the guys in all the different leagues. Uh, he's still doing some fun things, but he Jeff the, was uh, really... The, I'm sorry to cut you off here. The, the 50th anniversary and then the 75th ones too, right? Yes, he did. And he's, he's a wonderful artist and he works with leather. And, and uh, Jeff was hotter than a pistol. And we were at the NBA All-Star game and, and uh, that Michael's game-worn jersey uh, came up for sale. And I think we started at 10 grand or something. You know, David was the one, Stern was the one who was up on the, the block, you know, saying this is the one that's going to go for the most. And Jeff and I were apart at first. We were way apart. And it, it kept going up. It hit 35. And then it hit 40. And then it'd go like 42, 42, 5. And then it'd go 50. And Jeff and I would just keep on going. I look at Richard and he said, Tony, he said, uh, you, the, check for, the checkbook is open. I said, okay. I said, I'm going to have a ball. 
So I kept on going 55, 60, 65, 70. Look at Jeff. He's like starting to sweat. I know, you know, he was a sole proprietor, but a great guy. And he had a good pocket of change. I'm not saying he didn't. But Richard, we were making so much money at that time. And uh, went to 85, went to 90, went to 95, went to 98, went to 99 with Jeff. And I said, I'll take it for 100. And Jeff wouldn't go past 100. It was a great thing. And I just got made aware that it was one of the used as a patch uh, card um, and uh, and one of the most expensive trading cards was using the material from that. That blesses me because that was a wonderful time and a, a great experience for me and, and a great experience for the Upper Deck Company. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because it, it's interesting. Um, relic cards didn't come out for another handful of years after you bought that jersey. And like you said, it's in the UD game jersey cards, um, the, the one for Michael Jordan. You know, it's hard to think that any company saw the Relic era coming, and maybe you guys did, but what was the plan for that jersey? Why was it held for so long? It, um, well, there was no Relic cards when we were there. You know, we, we started numbering cards. The first card we numbered, I think, was one of 5,000 or one of 2,500 with Reggie, and we had him autograph them. Those were mm-hmm. the first uh, autograph cards. If you go back, those were the first ones. But nobody had really thought about putting, you know, pieces of material in cards, and that did come along after me. I know Carvin really took it to another level but um, with the exquisite line, but the concept was that it would pave the Sea Otter Place uh, Hall and Executive Row where all of us were, you know, and it was just something special. Richard liked really cool pieces of memorabilia. He believed in authenticity. We started Upper Deck Authenticated with that in mind. And I don't think any of us, I know I did not foresee um, that the pieces of relic would actually be in a card. Uh, We did hidden things, you know, hidden pieces like the like the uh, opportunities that we availed ourselves with Reggie, et cetera. And then I did some unique things with, uh, you know, um, Doug McMillan, who was the card buyer, who's now the CEO of Walmart. We did some fun things with hiding balls and creating some things, but we did not do the relic cards that when I was there and I applaud that um, and that creativity that they did come into later. Okay, before I move into the next portion of this conversation, I want to remind you that this show is brought to you in part by Check Out My Cards. COMC.com is your home for buying, selling, and flipping all types of trading cards. Their consignment marketplace is home to over 28 million cards across all sports, genres, and eras. With a ComC.com account, you can purchase cards from different sellers over time and ship them home together later or immediately reprice them for sale on the ComC marketplace. For more info, you can check them out on social media under the handle at CheckoutMyCards. Now, you mentioned that um, you guys were making a lot of money around that time, which you know everyone knows kind of the story of that era. Um, but just to give people a little more context for the time frame, I, I pulled a Los Angeles Times article from 1993, uh, and it mentions in there, it says, by 1991, with sports trading cards at its peak nationwide, the company's dividends hit $66.7 million on $263.3 million in sales. Upper Deck's dramatic growth slowed in 1992, however, 
after MLB and other leagues awarded card licenses to dozens of competitors who flooded the sports collectibles market with an astounding array of new products. Uh, now, people look back on that era and, and they call it the junk wax era just because there was just so much of it. As someone that was so immersed in this on a day-to-day -day basis, were you at all concerned about the direction of the trading card industry at this time? Uh, no, because I was a packaged goods marketer, right? And so my whole thought was to broaden the base. Uh, if we wouldn't have broadened that base, with collectors at that time, we probably wouldn't see where we are today, even though people do talk about it being the junk wax era. I call it the kid wax era, because right. what I did is I sort of focused in on McDonald's. You know, I, I worked in, you know, the packaged goods area and the fast food area and did many programs with the uh, Taco Bell and McDonald's over the years. But I actually went to McDonald's with the concept to do the Olympics with basketball. And we did the whole Olympics program with McDonald's and started getting cards in kids' hands. They did the cellophane packs. We had a Warren Millay uh, created a hologram and we had our hologram in there. We had great, you know, cards in there with, uh, we really focused a lot of, with the Lakers. And we, we did a lot of cool little packs that were all over the country. And I looked at it probably different than other people did. I wanted to get it in as many hands as possible. That was my desire. Right. And I think that's a good thing for the hobby to be accessible because um, there's been this big boom in this last few years here. And that was one of the major complaints is that we can't go to the store and buy cards, right? Kids can't get into this hobby. There's no entry point for them. So hopefully things are kind of turning around again and, and we do get it to where the kids can get back in. Um, now, the article that I referenced not too long ago here, it mentioned competing companies, and one such example was the Classic Card Company. And even though they didn't make NBA cards at the time, they were around nonetheless. Um, you were at Upper Deck when Shaq burst onto the scene. You mentioned that you signed him. Um, yes, now, I did. Now, it's my understanding, though, that Classic swooped in and, and signed him first, which kind of forced you guys to have to be creative to get Shaq cards in the packs. You had to do the redemption cards and the trade cards. Were you aware of what Classic had planned or did that kind of blindside you guys? No, nothing blindsided me with Kenny and Paul. You know, Paula's dad, I was heavily involved with Kenny back then. Actually, Kenny became a partner with me later with Ted Williams Card Company when we launched the basketball set, but uh, no, I, what I did is I said, okay, I'm going to sign Shaq for his first million dollars. And that's what I did. So I said, the reason we were going to break through in all this was the going to Shaq. And I had him into my office with his sister, rest in peace. She passed away and his mom and dad, and they came right into my office. And I, offered him his first million dollars. And if you watch videos about Shaq talking about his first million dollars, that I was the guy that made the offer. And I became a good, uh, I'd say really good partner with Shaq at that time, developing creative, creative ways to get into the marketplace. Leonard Armato was his agent at that time. And I worked extensively with Leonard on making sure that we could do some really unique things with Shaq. And he talks about his first million dollars was uh, from a trading card company. And that was from the deal I did with him and shook hands on it before he left my office. 
And I think we did the right thing with Shaq. I am surprised, though, that, you know, I ended up creating a car with Shaq. He and I did the Ford Shaq SST, and I gave him a lot of money for that, too. But that was in 2002. But I'm so surprised today that Shaq's cards don't go for as much as I would have think they would. They, he, His personality, his charisma, his interest in working with kids and was amazing. I'm really surprised that the value of Shaq's cards aren't quite at the value that I see other greats. And I do believe Shaq is a great, a legend. And I had the pleasure to work with him many, many times, even after I left Upper Deck. And I'm proud of what we did with Shaq and opened up some new opportunities. And Kenny, Kenny would laugh if I told him I'm not supposed to call Kenny Kenny. I call Kenny <laughs> Kenny. And uh, he would laugh about that Shaq thing. Well, I, I think Shaq might be kind of, or at least his values might be kind of plagued by just the era that he came from. You know, there were so many Jordan cards that, and, and people love guards, right? But big men, for whatever reason, have never had that same hobby appeal. Now, if you're a Shaq fan, that's kind of a good thing because it means you can probably get some deals Although his uh, his really rare stuff, it does still put up pretty good numbers. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. All right. So before we move on from the Upper Deck portion here, I, I know you probably have thousands of stories from your time at Upper Deck. And I, I asked about the ones that I knew about, but can you think of anything else, uh, maybe one specific story or, or something that stands out to you that, that you think my listeners would enjoy hearing? I think probably one of the unique things was the precursor to Space Jam, a gentleman by the Dan, Dan Romanelli was the head of Warner Brothers. And I had worked with Warner Brothers films quite a bit and worked a lot on movies. And I went to Dan and I said, Dan, why don't we do the first live action cartoon set of cards? And I'll do some video around it and I'll bring in some big hitters to be participating in it. And he said, I love that idea, Tony. So in 91, we actually created a series of uh, cartoon cards for the National and launched them at the National in 1991. And it was very successful. We had Nolan Ryan, Reggie Jackson. And then I did a whole thing with the quarterback club with Dan Marino and um, quite a bit of unique things with cartoon characters in advance of what soon became the Space Jam. That would be a really fun part of unique creativity that we got to do bringing Hollywood together uh, with trading cards and great athletes. Another story I'd say, this one involved my little daughter. For two years, we did the quarterback challenge. Don Garber, who's now the commissioner of soccer, of Major League Soccer, was in charge of special events, the Super Bowl, any big events for the NFL. And they uh, really control how you spend your dollars. So when you sign a licensing deal, they say, okay, you're going to spend a half million dollars on this media buy. And that was with John Miller and NBC. John's still the president of NBC Sports. And we did a deal for two years for the quarterback club over in Hawaii. And I got to take my family over there and two kind of fun things happened there. One would be at the practice, 
Dan Marino was, you know, hurling balls like he always does. And I got to know Danny pretty well and done a lot of things with Danny over the years. And uh, Danny throws a football from across the field and it comes up and smashes my little three-year-old daughter in the face. And I'll never forget Danny coming over and I was standing there, gets down on his knees and telling how sorry he was. <laughs> and that, that was a pretty special moment. And then one other moment is I get a call from a guy named Dan McLean in Dyersville, Iowa. And it was um, in, I think, like May or June, May of uh, 1991. And Dan says, Tony, I have a uh, a field at the Field of Dreams. And we'd like to put on a celebrity type of event and bring some big celebrities and athletes to uh, the Field of Dreams and put on a game. And I said, you're at the Field of Dreams, the one Kevin Costner did the movie, a Universal Pictures movie that I was involved with. And he said, yeah. I said, I'm in. <laughs> and he said, "He said, what do you mean you're in? I said, well, I'm in. I, whatever you wanna do, I'm gonna do at the Field of Dreams. For the next two years, we created parades. We Brought, I brought in tons of celebrities. Meatloaf was big back then. I brought uh, Richard Dean Anderson. I brought, oh my God, so many greats. Uh, Lou Brock, uh, Reggie Jackson. We had Mickey signed, but he didn't end up coming. I ended up getting the key to the city to Dyersville that I'm still proud of today that I have in my uh, man cave in my house. That uh, That was probably one of the most thrilling events. And then this last past year, I mentor a young man by the name of Matthew Ray Schultz. And Matthew is the lead singer for Cage the Elephant. And I took Matthew to uh, the Field of Dreams. And I still have the rights uh, to buy some of that. And that that's an ugly part of the story. But uh, Matt, Matt Perry and I are involved. Okay, so let's move on from your time at Upper Deck then. And, and not long after you left there, well, really, it seems like immediately from what I've read, you found yourself on the phone with Ted Williams and his son, John Henry. And I'm assuming you had already had some sort of working relationship with Ted at this point. Is that correct? Yeah, I, I got to know Ted really well. I did not sign that deal with Ted, the original deal. Uh, I think Don Bodo did, but I got to know uh, Ted really well. Uh, Been his place in Hernando, Florida, got to know John Henry a little. And uh, I got fired from Upper Deck after giving Richard a $26 million check and doing the Field of Dreams and raising the share value of Upper Deck to the highest levels. Again, Richard became my friend later, but I got fired on September 9th. Actually, I didn't even get fired, never did get fired. I uh, actually walked into Richard's office because Rob, Bruce McDowell's right-hand man, called me and said I was going to get fired. And I walked into Richard's office as if you're going to fire me, have some, I don't swear, but I, had, I used the word effing guts and do it yourself and walked out. That very next day, the September 10th, 1992, uh, Ted Williams called me and he said, Tony, he said, do you think you could build a trading card company around my name? I said, I'm sure I could. And he said, I have one other thing I'd like you to do. He said, I'd like you to mentor John Henry. And I said, I can do both of those. So I 
flew back down to Hernando, Florida, sat down with Ted. And then we went in and tried to do a deal with Upper Deck with Richard and Richard walked out of the meeting with Ted on the line, but that was a fun story. So as we already discussed, there was a lot of competition in this space already, and it was only increasing at this point. More companies were getting licenses. What was the purpose of the company necessarily, or, or what made you think that um, that, that could kind of survive in, in this era where there was so much competition? Well, first of all, I had a different strategy. I wanted to have all numbered cases. I want to have uh, numbered sets. I saw the writing on the wall, what, what you call the junk wax era, what the world calls the junk wax era. I saw the writing on the wall that there was a need for numbered cases and numbered items. And I said, okay, that's a area of availed in the industry. I had great relationships with all the leagues, not good, great relationships with all the leagues. And I saw that there was a area that had not been taken advantage of, and that's the Cooperstowns of the world, where a lot of these legends that had not had cards made for themselves in a new 14-point chrome coat like Upper Deck had or a really nice rice paper numbered, I thought, why not go to the leagues and get their support? So I went to Major League Baseball. Then I went to John Bellow at the NFL with uh, Roger Staubach and signed Roger Staubach. And I did the same thing with Kenny with, uh, you know, going to the NBA. And I just thought that the legends could take advantage of the opportunity. I had a really good working relationship with Walmart and uh, the largest buyer uh, for Walmart, Harold Anderson at that time, definitely the biggest buyer of trading cards in that era. And uh, he had agreed to buy a number of the cases. And Doug McMillan, as I had mentioned earlier, was the now CEO of Walmart, was the head buyer. And he loved the concept. And we went ahead and brought in some of the best creative guys and decided, let's put together a great line. And we did that. And it launched very successfully. Today, um, you know, you could find the cards. I think they're great looking set, undervalued mm -hmm. set. But, you know, we did the women in baseball with Dottie Pepper and, you know, all the women from League of Your Own and uh, that that story was on. We did the Negro Leaguers. Ted in 1966 talked about the Hall of Fame needing to embrace uh, the Negro Leaguers actually in that speech uh, implored then Bowie Kuhn uh, commissioner to bring the uh, Negro Leaguers into the Hall of Fame. And which ended up happening. And uh, we thought that giving honors to, you know, some of the Buck O'Neill's, the, uh, you know, some of the greats of, uh, that played the game, Satchel Page, and showing some of these uh, players on the best stock there is. Uh, would be a wonderful way to do it. They really are nice looking cards. Um, you mentioned kind of the different types of paper and it, it's got like, um, I don't know if, if canvas is the right word for it, but it's it's got like a nice textured feel to them, at least the ones that I own. Now, uh, I was talking with someone about the Ted Williams company the other day. And one card I got to bring up that I, I want to know the story behind I'm excited about is the OJ Simpson autograph that you had in your 1995 set. And this card came with a COA that stated on the back, this card was personally signed by OJ Simpson in the Los Angeles County Correctional Facility 
between September 15th and October 31st, 1994. So can you run me through these logistics? How do you coordinate a signing at the LA County Jail? Well, the agent of OJ, Michael, and I can't think of his last name. I always say Barnett, but that's Gretzky's agent. But Michael was really a gracious guy. And one of the key cards that we wanted to come to market was with OJ. He was obvious 32's a legend, right? And, you know, he was known for running through airports and, and really being a great uh, spokesman for the NFL. And, you know, he was out of the league at that time, but still a great spokesman at that time. And I come home and there I see Larry King with OJ going down the 405. And I say, oh, my golly, he's saying he's got a gun to his head. And he said he's got all kinds of problems. And he talked about his wife and I didn't do it and all of these frameworks. And the thing I thought to myself, number one, in my head, oh, crap. I promised Doug McMillan that we would have OJ signed cards um, in those packs. So I called Michael that right after that. And he picks up and he's, I said, Michael, I got a serious problem. I said, Doug McMillan, we're going to be shipping these cards for the NFL set here in the next month. And I don't have OJ sign those cards yet. He said, give me a call tomorrow. So I give him a call tomorrow. He answers. He says, Tony, he said, have one of your guys go up to the LA County jail. I've already cleared it with them. OJ will sign them in jail. So a gentleman by the name of Mark Vidal, he was like six foot five, big Cuban guy. Uh, He got all the cards, put them in a bag, drove up to the L.A. County Jail, uh, drove in through the gates and got the cards signed. And O.J. was very, very helpful making that happen. And I honor him for that, for honoring his word, even though in a terrible time. But that was a, it's a great, fun story, but scary seeing him go down the highway and I know he's going to jail. And I'm mm-hmm. sitting here saying, I got a, you know, $3 million PO from Walmart I can't deliver. So it was a quite an interesting story. And again, I do honor OJ for, you know, going ahead and signing those in jail. That was a, that was a man of his word. And no matter what you'd say about him in other areas, he was a man of his word doing it. And I thank him even today for doing that and saving my behind. Yeah, it, it makes for an interesting piece of, of whatever you want to call it, sports history, pop culture history, all of the above, um, to have those autographs that were signed in that jail. Well, I'm going to do something really. I'm going to give you a tidbit right now. But at the National, we're taking one of those signed cards and we are going to change it into card art. And in that card art, we're going to actually show the Bronco in the background like an exquisite card. And nobody in the world's heard me say that to anybody, but it will be at the 42nd National. It will be Beckett authenticated and Beckett slab. And it will be uh, a highlight at the show. And there'll be one more card at that show. And we've talked about it. And I'm not going to tell you any more about that one, but that one's coming too. And I'm working with a number of these great card artists and um, we're going to do some, I have some fun projects that we're going to be doing in the card art area. 
Okay, so you guys heard it here first, uh, a Wax Museum exclusive, and then also a teaser uh, for Atlantic City, which I will not be there this year. I've been to the last two nationals, but uh, I'm sure there'll be plenty coverage of it that I'll, I'll be able to pick up after the fact. Um, so after um, the Ted Williams company, you went on to do a number of other things. Like I said, I hate to reduce your career to such a, a short amount of time here. Like I said, you've worked with digital currencies. You've done a lot of charity work with athletes like Jeff Gordon. Uh, we mentioned heads and tails earlier, and you were working with different camera angles for summer league at one point. Is there one project in particular after your time in the card industry that um, you want to highlight before we close things out today? Yeah, I'll give you a nice little tidbit. I got some video on this and I've never shown anybody of it other than my kids that shot it. But in uh, December of 95, I decided to take off time. I, I, I would call it I retired at the ripe old age of 40 and decided to take off several years. I did not work really again until uh, 2001, and I had launched many cars for Ford Motor Company. I launched the Eddie Bauer line for Ford. I launched the uh, Ralph Lauren Lincoln, I, the Perry Ellis. I launched that Lincoln. Um, I uh, executed a lot of card lines for Chrysler Corporation here in California. And I thought to myself, why not combine automotive with a great athlete. And I had a great relationship with Shaq. And so I called Shaq and I said, Shaq, how would you like to do a Ford car? And he said, how about if we do a truck? I said, I love it. So I went to Doug Walzak at Ford Motor Company, who was running the Ford truck division. I said, Doug, if I could bring Shaq in, can I do for Ford what we did with uh, Eddie Bauer but we'll call it the Shack SST. And he said, I love it. So he had to go up the line to get it all approved. I cut a deal with uh, Leonard Armato again, and I cut a deal with Ford Motor Company to launch, launch the Shack SST. But the fun story is I was at Ryan Friedenhaus, West Coast Customs. Ryan did a television show called West Coast Customs. Uh, customs with Shaq at that time. And I drove up to Ryan's place and Shaq met me in the conference room. I had my two sons with me. They were young whippersnappers at that time. And they had cameras down at the end. And I had made up a color and upholstery book. We knew it was going to be a, they were going to do a silver and a black expedition. And I had created what in the automotive industry is called the color and upholstery book. And what it is, is it shows the different upholstery materials and the different colors that you would use on the interiors. And Shaq is looking at them and I turn this page and there's this beautiful, beautiful black lady in a uh, bikini and the bikini's got gray on one side and black on the other and just cut right at her breast and Shaq reaches over and starts petting it literally <laughs> petting it and I reach over and I slap his hands I said don't do that those are my boys right there and we started laughing <laughs> and I have that on film and that was a one a, a sort of a good story to end on and a, a great thing that I had the opportunity to do with Shaq and he helped me out in charity many times over the the life of our relationship and I thank him for everything he's done with me and 
for me. And uh, he's a wonderful man. Well, Tony, um, we could stay here talking for a long time, but um, I got to let you go. I know we've, we've gone over what I told you we would do. So I'm, I'm very thankful for that. Um, I love learning more about the history of the industry and you are certainly a wealth of knowledge. Before I let you go, I want to give you the opportunity to plug any of your social media handles or any projects that you're working on. If you'd like these next few moments here are yours. I just want to say, I love this hobby. I'd really say I'd like to plug the 42nd national and you know what they're doing um, at Tony Loyacono on Instagram. I'm always writing there. I have my biggest following on LinkedIn because I'm an old guy and, you know, have a lot of business partners that I've worked with over the years and have a big following there. I do have Kono uh, underscore IO uh, on Instagram also. And uh, I just look forward to learning more about what's going in the hobby. I love where it's going. And, you know, we, we talk about it a little bit of a slowdown, but I think right now it's a perfect time to do some real unique things in the marketplace. And I'm blessed to have the opportunity to come forward and talk with you. And I wish you only the best. All right. Thanks again, Tony. Thank you. All right. Well, there you have it. Thanks again to Tony for coming on the show. I posted a few teasers from our conversation earlier in the week on my YouTube and the response was pretty favorable. So I hope you enjoyed hearing the rest of that conversation today. I know I had a lot of fun just being a part of it. Maybe there was something specific that we talked about that stood out to you. Feel free to let me know on social media. You can find me on Instagram under the handle at Wax Museum Podcast. I'm also on Twitter under at Wax Museum PC. If you enjoyed this episode, I encourage you to support the show by doing all of your eBay purchasing through the link on my site, which is www.waxmuseumpodcast.com. There's a big eBay logo at the top. Click that and it should give me a small percentage of whatever you purchase in the 24 hours that follow. Once again, that's www.waxmuseumpodcast.com. In the meantime, if you like the content I'm providing, please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. Hit up the Podbean site for a link to the merch store. Tag Taco Bell and let them know they can pay me in burritos. And until next time, this is the Wax Museum Podcast. Podcast.